Well, good morning, One Church. How are you all today? All right, five of you are good. All the rest of you is going to wait and see how it goes. That's all right. That's all right. Come on with me. We'll, we'll make it together. It is tough to come out and follow an incredible worship set led by an incredible worship band. They are super. Um, and I almost didn't want to come out, but I don't want to be stuck. And I don't want you to be stuck anymore as we journey together through this series. This is our fourth installment of Stuck. We've done uh, Stuck in Religion, Stuck in Relationships, Stuck in Circumstances. And this week we'll talk about being stuck in stuff. And next week we're going to wrap it up with being stuck in sin and what that feels like and, and how we can find uh, help in that state. So come back. Uh, be a part of that, uh, that with us. My name is Joel. I'm the family pastor here. Uh, it, it's just uh, exciting to, to be with you guys this morning. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that uh, I love Walt Disney World. Uh, love is not even a, probably a strong enough word. I, I, am, uh, I am obsessed with Walt Disney World. Uh, I am addicted to Walt Disney World. It, it, is, it is something that we do often. This is where we go on vacation as a family. Uh, this, this is where my wife and I went on our honeymoon. It, it's also, we've gone more times than, than I really care to say up here from the stage, 36. Um, and uh, we've done it uh, so many times because we love going. Now, just a little caveat. We can't afford to go, all right? We totally go on the coattails of family who can afford it and family that works there and can get us in for free. That's why we go so much, all right? So don't be wondering, like, what is my tithe going to, all right? Your tithe is actually going to my awesome wardrobe, all right? Uh, but we love Disney World. We, we're so obsessive about it. We're going in two weeks. You all are invited. You come on with us, okay? We're going in two weeks that last night... Two weeks out from this trip, my wife and I are on computers together in our dining room figuring out how we can go on another one in January. That's how crazy we are about it. And it's because really when we go to Disney, there's memories there uh, that we formed as, as a young married couple, as we started having children, as our family started having children, we all started going together. Uh, there's memories there. There's moments there. There is, dare I say, magic there. I give to you one of these magical moments at Walt Disney World. It's on our one-year anniversary trip. My wife and I went down uh, by ourselves. I was a starving seminary student. My wife uh, was doing interior design at that point. We were just really literally living paycheck to paycheck. And we decided for our first anniversary, let's save some money. Let's pull some money together. Let's go to Disney. Like, yes, yeah, this will be great. So I had a break from school. I, I, I was taking any time somebody wanted me to take a shift for them at the restaurant I waited tables at. I mean, we just pick up doubles and we we're just squirreling away money, squirreling away money, lots of ramen noodles, just try to pull money together so we can go and have this trip. And because we have an uncle that, that works there and gets us in for free, we don't have to worry about tickets. If we can get down there, we got, we got a hotel at a really crazy discount. And then we said, we're going to take food with us to the parks. So we'll do like breakfast, split a breakfast together, and then we'll just kind of snack all day, and then we'll use some of this money we've saved up, and we'll have like a nice dinner every night. We're like, this would be a great plan. This would be awesome. So that's what we did. Every day when we left our hotel, my wife and I would pack into this little backpack that she wore some bottles of water, some granola bars, you know, fruit, some sandwiches, and, and, and when we were waiting in line, we'd just snack. If we were hungry, just pull something out, start eating. We're in our second or third day on our trip, and we're at the Magic Kingdom, and we're in Tomorrowland. And if, if, that, if you don't know what that means, you really need to come with me in two weeks, okay? I, just, I, I love you too much for you to not know what Tomorrowland is. And we're in Tomorrowland. We're waiting to go on Space Mountain. We're sitting there having a little snack. 
And if you want to know another thing about me, all right, if I'm not nerdy enough about Disney World, I love birds, all right? I like bird watching. I know. It's, it's pretty cool. And I love bird watching. And so we're sitting there having a snack and just being together, and I look over, and there's this little pathetic-looking seagull. And he's looking at me, and I'm looking at him, and I see in his little seagull eyes that he's hungry. I said, do you need a little snack, buddy? And his little seagull head, he went, so I took a little piece of bread off my sandwich, just a little, just a crumb, and I flicked it over to him. And before he ate it, I promise you, he took his little seagull wing and he put it to his little seagull heart. And he ate that. I could tell he was happy he was better. Now I look back at my wife, we chat a little bit, and I turn back, and that seagull has been joined by a little seagull buddy. There's two of them. I said, seagull number two, are you, you hungry, buddy? He gave me a little nod, took a little piece of bread off, I flicked it over to him. Wing bumped his buddy and then took it to his chest for me, and I knew we were all friends now. And then a third one landed, not as pathetic as the first two. It's like, I don't know if he needs a crumb, but I threw one to him anyway. And before I know it, seagulls are landing all around us. There's even other birds that aren't seagulls landing around us. Geese and, and wood ducks and cranes and herons all start, all these birds start appearing around us. They're, they're all of a sudden have gone from one pathetic seagull to like 25 seagulls around us. My wife and I start to get a little panicky here. And we're, we're like, oh, we, we better go. We better go. And, and the birds are getting kind of jumping up in the air and flapping and they, they're wanting this food. So I toss what's left of my, of my, uh, my sandwich to them and my wife for reasons unbeknownst, even to this day, continue to cling to her granola bar. Why she held on to this granola bar, I don't know. It's not that granola bars are that expensive. I'm like, dear, it's a 25-cent granola bar. Give it to the seagulls. But she's starting to get panicky now and freaking out because these seagulls are flapping around and they're ah, ah, squawking at us. And she's just holding on to this granola bar like it's a port cane. It's just going to take her away. And these seagulls are, are bouncing around. And I jump up and I'm like, I just start backing away. And because I'm a good, brave, loving husband, I left her there with all those seagulls and I took off. And at this point, she starts really panicking. She's screaming. Whoa, ah, ah, ah. I get clear of the seagulls so I can watch this, hoping that in the future there is technology, uh, like say on a cell phone that has cameras and videos that we can record this and then upload it to social media sites. But it wasn't there that day. So I just watched and enjoyed it. And knew one day I'd get to use it in a sermon. And all these birds are flapping around my wife, who's still clinging to this chocolate chip granola bar. And then way off in the, in the sky, way off in the Orlando sky, this bird starts to fly down from the sky towards her, towards my wife. And I'm like, get rid of the granola bar. And she's screaming and she's yelling and she's hoping that somebody will come to her aid. Maybe her husband, but probably not. It's got to be a security guard that can help her. And out of the sky, this seagull comes swooping down. I didn't know if it was a seagull. It was like part pterodactyl. It was enormous. And its wing smacked her in the face. And it kind of shot her back to reality, and she took off running, the birds flapping, running, squawking, ah, ah, after her. And my wife turns to them, she's a few yards away, and she takes that granola bar, and she goes, take it, and flings it at the birds, and it's like blood in the water, the birds are all sweeping around, and my wife and I, we took off to Frontierland and never looked back. To this day, when we walk into Tomorrowland, we have to scope, any seagulls here? Is anybody carrying any bread? You got to be careful. It's funny how we'll hang on to things. 
How we'll hang on to, to food so often. Food that, that can spoil. Food that can lose its taste. Food that can be taken from us by bloodthirsty, breadthirsty birds. It's interesting how that is. Because in our minds, in our human minds, if I give this up, I don't know if I'll get it back. This is dangerous. This is scary. This is threatening me. But I'm going to hang on to this. We don't just do it with food, do we? We do it with stuff. All the time, we do it with stuff. We buy stuff that's going to go out of style, that's going to get passed up technologically, that's going to get broken, that's going to get stolen. And then we go back and we do it all over again, get more stuff that's going to go out of style, that's going to get passed up in technology, that's going to get broken, that's going to get stolen. We do it again and again. We get into this cycle, this cycle of more stuff. And after we get that stuff, we get more stuff again to replace that previous stuff. And stuff, stuff, stuff. Constantly looking for that next thing. Not just because we want to have a great TV, but that TV means a great life. Not just because we want to have a great phone, but because that phone means a better life. We look for stuff to fix. We look for stuff to fill. We look for stuff to do. We're bombarded, bombarded with this idea of stuff and having to have stuff. Tim Jackson, who is a a, a sociologist, a cultural observer, he said this in a quote. People are being persuaded to spend money that they don't have for things that they don't need to create impressions that won't last on people that they don't care about. It's so powerful that the average American home has over $8,000 in credit card debt because we have to have stuff. Even if we can't afford it, we have to have stuff. Stuff, stuff, stuff. Another sociologist, Dr. Ronald Roldheiser, says this. We do things and we no longer know why. We feel constantly pressured, victimized, hyper-driven. We overwork, but we're bored. We socialize excessively, but we are lonely. We work to the point of exhaustion, but we feel like our lives are a waste. Constantly trying to get more stuff, more stuff, more stuff. Why? So we can take a picture of it with our phone and put it onto Facebook so people will like it. If we get 10 or more likes, we've made it. Our impression is made. And we constantly look for these things because, friends, we are hungry. We are searching. We're wanting. And the birds, they're circling. The reality is that we can be active, yet still very stuck when it comes to stuff. Doing and working and earning and saving, but still be stuck. Many of us today are stuck in stuff waiting for that next thing to make us feel better, to fill us up because we're hungry, to be that thing that we're looking for because we're searching, to be that thing that we so desperately need because we are wanting, looking for stuff, stuff, stuff. In John chapter 6, Jesus meets a group of people who are hungry, who are searching, who are wanting. And a story pops up of him connecting with these people. People who are stuck in their stuff. If you have your Bible or you want to go there on your phone or 
uh, or some type of device, go to John chapter 6. In this chapter of John, it, it, it centers, the story centers around the Sea of Galilee. Sea is a, is a bit of a misnomer here. Um, it's actually more of a lake. We've got a, a picture of uh, the Sea of Galilee, and you'll see it's, it's not very big. It's actually only about 13 by 8 miles. It's, it's, it's not very big. It's, so sea is, is really, it's really just a large lake. You can see from one side to the other. You can see movement around it. Um, but for some reason, they call it sea. This would be like if we slipped over the border to Kentucky Lake and decided that it's going to be Kentucky Sea instead, which I think Wildcat fans would really love because they'd be like, we got eight national championships and a sea. Take that, Tennessee. But I digress, Wildcat fans, I digress. The, the Sea of Galilee is important to this because that's why so much is happening so quickly. In John 5, where we went last week and met the man at at, at the pool of Bethesda, the Sea of Galilee is not too far from there. So we can see how this movement's going on and all of these events start to happen really quickly. In in fact, in John 6, two of Jesus' most iconic uh, events happen, feeding the 5,000 and walking on the sea. All happen in John 6, and it goes quickly because you can see it's not a very big sea or lake. In fact, the Sea of Galilee itself is a character in this story. As these people who are hungry and searching and wanting are looking for whatever stuff they can get, it all happens on the banks of this sea. A sea that provides jobs, which provides income. A sea that's full of food, which provides food. The Sea of Galilee to these people is a sea of stuff. And I don't think it's lost on Jesus when he talks about what he talks about in John 6 to be on the banks of this sea. Because there's many people who are looking at him and they're looking at him the same way as they do at the Sea of Galilee. Give me stuff, Jesus, and if you won't give it to me, I'll go to this sea because it'll give me stuff. And Jesus wants to show them and Jesus wants to show me and Jesus wants to show each of you that our reliance on stuff will keep us stuck. An encounter with him can change our lives. And Jesus saw this in John 6 when all of these hungry people came to him. In the second verse of of chapter 6, it it tells us that the people followed Jesus because of all the signs and all of the wonders and all the miraculous healings that he had performed. They were following after him, looking for healing. We learned last week in John 5 that this was all happening around the the Passover feast. And Jews have to go to Jerusalem. They're they're obligated by religious law to go to to these three, to three festivals or feasts every year, and Passover is one of them. So thousands and thousands of Jews would flood this region. They would come for this feast. They're coming looking for something. They're looking for stuff. And they hear about this man Jesus. They've, They've heard rumblings, and now they get to see him. They get to see him and experience him. And they're searching. They're wanting something. They're, they're wanting a fix. They're wanting more stuff. They're wanting a Messiah. And so it starts to get a little frantic there, a little exciting, as they meet this man, Jesus, finally. These thousands of pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims that have come in, finally meeting him. And they've heard that, that, that just a, a, a few weeks before, Jesus miraculously healed a government official's son, was on the, the verge of death, and Jesus healed him. And so this kind of 
excitement starts to build around Jesus. And then he goes to the pool at Bethesda and he heals the invalid man that we all met last week. So we talked about his situation of being stuck in his circumstances. And Jesus heals him and the excitement builds. And then the Pharisees question Jesus and question his motives and question what he's saying. They're like precursors to to what we have in bloggers. They don't like what somebody says, so they just start blogging about it. And the Pharisees start to question Jesus. And because of of all of this, this, this turmoil that's going on around the Pharisees and Jesus, more excitement builds. People get more intrigued. And then Jesus leaves the city. He leaves kind of this madness, and it says thousands and thousands and thousands of people follow him. He goes out to the hills. He goes out to the edge of the sea, and none of them have food, and then he feeds them. They're following him, wanting to be healed, and he gives them a meal, miraculously does it. It's going insane here. This is how I felt like when I joined the army. I joined the army. I wanted to serve. And I show up, and I start getting a paycheck. And then they give me a bag of stuff. You pull it out, and there's helmets in there. And there's, like, things to wear. I pulled out a sleeping bag, and then I found out it's not a sleeping bag. It's a sleep system. And we get all this stuff given to us. I'm like, I just wanted to serve, but I'm getting all this free stuff. Then they give me free flu shots. That's a $30 savings, people, and they give one to me every year. Then they say, hey, chaplain, come here. And they start sticking more needles in me. And I'm getting like hepatitis A and B and F and N shots. They're shooting all these things. Then this year they're like, we're going to give you anthrax shots. Do you know how expensive that is on the black market? That's like a $300 savings. And the army just gives it to me. This is how these people are feeling. They're just showing up to be healed. And they're being fed. They're given a free dinner. How great is this? And the frenzy builds around Jesus. These people are getting excited. And then he walks on water. He's not just healing people and feeding people. Dude walks on water. And it's just frenzy. It's a fever pitch all around Jesus. All of this excitement. All of this energy. Arguably in John 6, this is one of Jesus' most popular times in his very brief public ministry. He is more popular here than maybe anywhere else except when he comes into the city before he goes to the cross. They are excited. They're passionate. This this frantic fever. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Stuff, stuff, stuff. The crowd started to build at the pool of Bethesda because they want to get healed. Then the crowd grows as Jesus teaches and challenges these religious leaders. And they start to see that maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe he's going to go and take over the government. And these people are excited because they're going to get government. And then they go to the hill and the the crowd gets excited because they get fed. Because they want to get fed. And then they get frantic on the shores as Jesus shows what he is able to do walking on the water. And they realize that they're going to get power. These people are going to get healed. They're going to get government. They're going to get fed. They're going to get power. So of course they're excited. Of course they're they're frantic. And let's see what they do. In John chapter 6, we'll start at verse 22. It says this. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there. And that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. 
And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. They are searching for Jesus. Why? Because they're stuck. They're stuck. And the way they think they're going to get unstuck is by more stuff. This man's healing. He's giving bread. Let's go find him. Where's he at? They're they're, they're panicked. They're looking for him. It says that he fed 5,000 men. So wives, children, and slaves weren't counted. Most likely there were 10, 11, 12,000 people around this shore getting on boats, walking around that very small area, trying to find Jesus, searching for Jesus, because they want stuff. They want healing from sickness. They want help from the government. They want their hunger pains to be taken away. They want their hold on power. What we have to realize about these things and their search is that these are external things, temporal things. And when, when we look for these things to fix us, These things to make us feel better. These things to, quote unquote, change our lives. It's going to simply be external. And it's going to keep us hungry. It's going to keep these people hungry. It's going to keep us searching. It's going to keep these people searching. It's going to keep us wanting. It kept these people wanting. All the while the birds are circling. All the while the cycle starts again. We have to realize this truth today. We are never guaranteed everything that the world says we should have. I've been through this Bible enough. I've been back and forth through it. I've read it a couple of times. I get paid to read it now. It's a pretty cool gig. And I've been through this enough to see there's no promise in here in any of these books, even the small ones, that we're guaranteed everything the world says we should have. There's no promise, there's no guarantee that everything marketing, media, advertising says you should have, you should have. There's there's no promise in there that says whatever your friends or family tell you, you have to have to have the better life, the good life. You're not promised to have that here in this. And if you go to a church that tells you you can have that, friends, you need to run. You need to flee. You need to turn off that cable television channel. And the pastor who wants you to send $29.95 and shipping and handling, and he'll send you a vial of miraculous water and promise you all the stuff you've ever dreamed of and all the prosperity you've ever had. If you ever hear that at a church, if you ever hear that from a preacher, run. Because we're not guaranteed that. Because those things that we we'll work for, we'll scrimp and save, we'll beg, we'll borrow, we'll trade, we'll deal, we'll steal. Those things are external and they'll never fulfill us and they'll never get us unstuck. The truth is we won't always feel healthy. The truth is that we won't always have people in government offices that we like or even voted for. The truth is that we won't always be full and feasting on the choice meats and wines. The truth is we won't always be the ones who are making decisions. If we wait for these things to always happen, we will remain stuck. If we want these things to define us, we will always remain stuck. Most importantly, if we look to Jesus to be the one that's going to offer all of these things to us, we will remain stuck. That's not why Jesus came. That's not why Jesus loves. That's not why Jesus is calling you to give you more stuff. You will remain stuck. But here is the power and the passion and the love of Jesus. He has something far greater for you if you hang on 
and listen to what he has to say. In verse 25, it says about these people who are searching. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Really, they're kind of going, Rabbi, where's my stuff? And Jesus says to them, join the army, suckers. All right, maybe that's not in this verse. That's the KJV, the King Joel version. But they look to him, Rabbi Jesus, you fed us, you've healed us, give us more. Where's my stuff? I want this. And look at how Jesus responds in verse 26. I tell you the truth. You were looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. You got your stuff and you want more of it. And he says in 27, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus essentially says in two verses what I've been trying to say for the last 15 minutes. He might have not done it with the dramatic flair and humor that I have, and the down-home folksy charm that I try to, to get out, he does it, sadly, much better than I ever will. And in two verses, he tells them, and he tells you and I that are looking for stuff to fill us and define us, but yet we're stuck. He looks at us and he says, stop working for these things that spoil, that get broken, that go out of style, that the birds can take away. Don't work for those things. Instead, work for the food that endures to eternal life, the food that the Son of Man gives, the food that God himself approves. Jesus is saying to all of us who are stuck in our stuff, there is a different way. You're so exhausted because you're going back into that cycle. It can end, it can end. Look for something that doesn't spoil, that's not temporal, that's not simply here on earth. There is more. So the people get it, obviously, right? We see it in verse 28. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Okay, maybe they don't get it yet. In fact, they go back to what a lot of us go back to, work. What do I have to do? What do I have to say? How do I have to look? How do I have to dress? How do I have to smell? Tell me what to do to get this stuff and I'll do it. How do I get this? Look at Jesus' response in verse 29. Jesus answered, The work of God is this, colon, to believe in the one he has sent. To believe. There's the instruction. Believe. The crowd is waiting. All right, he's going to tell us what to do. He's going to tell me how to get more stuff. They've got their little eye scrolls out, and they've got their quill and their parchment app open, and they're waiting. They're like, number one, yes, believe. And number two, they're waiting for that second thing, that, that next to-do list, the thing to check off. They're like, what else? Believe and anything in italics, parentheses? What else do I have to do? This is how we learn that Jesus is not a Southern Baptist because his whole sermon is one point. Believe. Believe is all he tells us. That's all we have to do. And they don't get it. They don't get it. Because in verse 30, they ask him, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? 
Our forefathers, they ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They look at Jesus and say, it can't just be belief. What else? What do I have to look for? What do I have to do? What are you going to do? Tell me what I have to do. Tell me what you're going to do. Give me stuff, stuff, stuff. Come on, Jesus. They even say to him about manna. These were all good Jews, and they heard the stories of the, the, the nation of Israel wandering in the wilderness, and the food wasn't there, and God brought manna every single day. Manna came down, manna came down, and all they had to do was collect it every single day. And they do something that stuck people do. Stuck people don't remember the parts that they don't like. They just remember the part that they want. We want to be fed, just like they had manna. They didn't realize that their forefathers got tired of the manna, and they complained about the manna. They don't remember the parts that, that, that their forefathers took the manna and tried to hide it, and it would spoil They don't remember the parts that the manna could be taken away by the birds. They want temporal. They want something earthly. They want stuff to fix them and make them feel better. And they're willing to work for it. And Jesus simply says, believe, believe, believe. To them and to you and to me, we believe. This is hard for us to take. Because stuck people always want to work their way out. That's why they're stuck, and that's why they remain stuck. What else do I have to do? Ephesians 2 tells us that grace is what saves us, not works, Paul says in Ephesians 2. It's not works. And why isn't it works? Paul says, so that no one can boast. We've been given grace, and we, give gra- we get grace not by what we've done or do or act, but by simply believing that God is good enough to give that to me. Instead of looking for the external, the temporary, those things being taken by birds, not not being content with grace, we want to work. What else must I have? What else do I need? What else must I eat? What else do I have to take? What else should I save? We do this and they do this when we're stuck. Because we cannot believe that Jesus can fill every crack and every crevice of who we are in our hearts and our souls and our spirit. And Jesus is saying to them and to each of us, yes, I can. Believe. Believe. He responds to their desire to work and their hope for him just giving them more manna. And in verse 32 he says, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The word life in the original language of the New Testament in Greek, there's actually two words for life. It's why Greek is so awesome to study and and learn. Because you never know what word they're trying to apply here. Because it could be life, or it could be life. It's not confusing at all. In the Greek, the, the, the two ways that you can use life is bios. It's where we get our word biology from. It means physical, earthly, temporal. But you could also say for life the word zoe, which means spiritual, soul, eternal. Jesus is saying there is bread There is bread that will give life. And it comes down to us to decide which life we want. Bios, physical, or zoe, eternal, spiritual. 
When Jesus offers you life, which life do you want offered? Physical, eternal. What do you hear when he says to you, I will give you life? Do you hear bios or zoe? What do you want? Do you want physical stuff? Or spiritual stuff? The choice is ours. To believe or not to believe. To take or not to take. Jesus is simply saying it's there. It's offered. But he's saying to you, if you want stuff to fix you, to make you feel better, to help you get through the day, if that's the stuff you want, you don't want a savior, you want a slot machine. And Jesus is not that. But if you want your soul to be healed, your heart to be tended to, and your life to have purpose, that is zoe, and it is offered to you. That's bread. That is bread that cannot be taken or cannot spoil, can't go tasteless. The birds can't sweep in and take it. And to have that life, to have that zoe, to have that bread, we just simply have to believe. To believe. So if you email me today or text me today and say, what do I need to do next? My response is going to be, believe. If you ask me in the hallways, what do I do next? Believe. It's that simple. Believe. That's why our big idea today is this. Stuff keeps you stuck, but belief breaks your bondage. Stuff will keep you stuck, but belief, it will break your bondage. Verse 34, the the people respond. Sir, we've learned enough the last few weeks that these people love to drop respectful terms. Sir, come on. Let's get down to the bread. Sir, from now on, give us this bread. This bread you talk about, just give it to us. Every single day, whenever we want it, give us that bread. I'll have that. Keep me going today and I'll get some more. Sadly, those who said that and thought that the bread was temporal, it was eternal, it was physical, it was bios, they went away hungry. My prayer today for you is this, don't go away hungry You have hungry souls and hungry hearts. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here on a Sunday morning. You'd still be in bed, but you're here because you're hungry. Don't leave hungry anymore. Realize what Jesus is offering. Look at what he says to them. Look at what he's saying to each of us here today in verse 35. Then Jesus declared. He's done mixing words. It's just kind of like how we talked to the invalid man last week when he said, I am the water. He declared it. He's doing the same type of declaration here. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He will never be thirsty. Jesus says, I am the bread. There is no longer going to be hunger or thirst if you believe in me. I don't want to mix the analogies anymore. Jesus is the bread. He's saying that to each of you who are stuck in your stuff. Feast on him. Take him in, in your heart, in your soul, in your life will change. He says in verse 36, but as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. There are people who still won't believe. And it all rises and falls here. Without belief, we will remain stuck. That's a guarantee. We will be looking for the next thing to buy, the next thing to keep us going another day. Friends, that is not living 
That is not relationship. That is not Jesus. He says in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. There's this first promise. If you come to him, you will never be driven away. If you believe in him, you will never be driven away. And then he says, for I come down from heaven not to do the will uh, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given to me. There's a second promise. You will not be lost if you believe in Jesus. If you take him at his word and trust him, you won't be lost again. And then he says, for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. There's his third promise. You will have eternal life. When we take Jesus, the bread, and we feast on him and stop looking for other things to define us or fix us or fulfill us, we will remain stuck. But if we reach out to him and believe in him, we will never be driven away. We will never be lost again, and we will have eternal life. I wonder today, who is here that is always driving, looking for the next thing to have, the next thing to own, the next thing to get Who here is looking and driving for that? Jesus says to you, you will never be driven away. You believe in me. I wonder today, who here is lost? Because these things that the world promised to fulfill you, it hasn't fulfilled you and your heart is still empty. Your soul is still searching. Who here is lost today? Jesus is saying to you as the bread of life, you will never be lost again. Who here wants a life of meaning and purpose, and passion. Jesus' promise to you is you will have eternal life, a life of substance, not stuff, substance. And that all happens when we take Jesus at his word and we believe when he says, I am the bread of life. I am the only thing you need. I am the only stuff you need. I am the only Savior that you need. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you look to each one of us who are hungry, who are searching, who are looking, who are lost, and you say to us, I love you. I'm passionate about you. I give my life for you. I give my life and blood to cover your sins. I want to encounter you. I want to be in a relationship with you. I am the bread of life. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Because many of us have been in the wilderness for far too long, searching and hoping and wanting for that next fix, for that next stuff. And we're stuck. And we don't want to be stuck anymore. So Jesus, in your love and in your power, may the Holy Spirit fall on those today who are searching to realize that stuff is not what they need. A Savior named Jesus is what they need. May they believe in you today and trust in you as their Lord, as their Savior, as their friend, Jesus. Thank you for loving us that much, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.